we are up to verse 17. Paul here really beginning after he stated he was not ashamed of the gospel and spoke of a righteousness from God, then began to lay out from 118 kind of to this point where everybody is under the judgment of God. Nobody's going to escape that. He's going to continue that all the way really through 320. And he has spoken about the pagan kind of idolater whose sin is obvious, who resists the truth and rejects God. And in that last section, we looked at the beginning of 2 down to 16, where we ended. He spoke to that Gentile who was kind of a moralist individual that would look at that kind of pagan, obvious sinner and say, yeah, they have a problem, but I'm different based on whatever ethic they were living off of and said, no, you two, you're under the judgment of God as well. You're not escaping it. You don't have some excuse. And he now moves to this last kind of group of people who would be the Jew. Because the Jew would say, okay, I get that guy and I get that guy, but we have received a God-ordained religion and we are different than them. And Paul is now going to show that Jews did not escape God's judgment through their religion. So he will begin in verse 17 and say, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and you rest on the law, and you make your boast in God, and you know his will, and you approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. And you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boasts in the law, do you dishonor God through the breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. So Paul, as he begins here, he knew this Jewish elitist mentality better than anybody because it was him. That was his life. That was what he grew up in. And what he's going to do is he's going to point out their duplicity and their sinfulness. And he, he's going to address it, I think, both personally and publicly in the sense that Israel as a nation through their history had done these things, as well as the people who were currently living. There's some argument, is he talking about just people in that day or back in the day? And both are true. And I think for us, the thing that's important here is just to remember, you know, the Jew did have God-ordained truth. They, they didn't have some false religion. They had the truth of God. And for them to switch out of this thought that, you know, the thing that God laid down for us has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and is continuing and will look different was very hard for them. And they needed to see those things, but it was difficult for them to just say, okay, I can I cannot just step through the forms of this religious thing that were given by God. Again, the forms they received, they were not made up by them. They were given by God, most of them. They added to it, but the ones that were truly from the Lord. And, and to surrender that in a way was very hard for them. So uh, as we look at this, 17 through 24, we see the Jewish religion as particularly intellectual. 25 through 29, we're going to see that Jewish religion as more ceremonial. And Paul's going to make the point, both of these are void, void without the spiritual. So you, you're not escaping the judgment of God here. I will just say, as we go through, I do think in terms of application, this does relate to us as well, because in the day and age in which we live, Paul's point is to show them, again, they're not escaping the judgment of God here, but I do think for us, we have God-ordained things that we regularly step into. Hebrews tells us we're not supposed to forsake the gathering of ourselves together. We do that. We know we're supposed to teach the word give attention constantly to the reading, the explanation of the Word of God, exhortation through it. 
We know we're supposed to break bread together. We know we're supposed to pray together. Christians know there's things that God has told us to do, and we're supposed to do those things. But we, too, can lose him in the form of those things and just go through the motions without having the spiritual reality. And I think it's important for us to recognize there are some people who just lean on those things. I go to church. I was baptized, like the scriptures say. I take communion. But there is no real personal spiritual reality behind those things. And those people do not escape the judgment of God, even in our modern Christianity. And those of us who have the spiritual reality, it is it is easy to kind of let that slip after a while and to begin to just go through the motions of those things and not really be interacting with the Lord personally. I myself have to think about this, right? I'm a pastor. I do spiritual things regularly. I teach the Bible. I read. I study. I pray. I have to do those things personally, and I also do them regularly publicly. But Am I, am I just going through the motion or just showing up at church again? Am I just reading the Bible again? Is there actually an expectation that I can walk into this place, God can speak to me and my life can be changed, or do we just walk into a building, sit down, expect to kind of like what happens and walk out with no intention of God ministering us in a way that can change our life eternally? whether we're saved or not. And so I think the challenges that he will give here to these Jews are still a good application for us to think through and say, okay, Lord, I might not be exactly in their position, but teach me. Let me make sure these things that I say that are given by you are real in my life as well. So what he'll do first in 17 through 24, what we read there, is a very interesting structure. Paul gives these sets of five. So in 17 through 18, Paul lays out five Jewish privileges. Notice he says, indeed, you're a Jew. You rest on the law, one. You make your boast in God, two. You know his will, three. You approve the things that are excellent, and you're instructed out of the law. He lays those five things out. These were privileges these Jews would see and have. Then he builds in the next two verses, 19 and 20, five subsequent duties that they felt necessary then based on those things. So what he says is, so then you're confident that you're a guide to the blind, that you're a light in the darkness to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, that you have a form of knowledge and truth in the law. Well, then, because you have these privileges, you have to do these things toward others, particularly the Gentiles. And then what he does is, based off those things, he lays out five questions for them in 21 through 23. Challenges. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Uh, certainly in the Old Testament, that happened plenty. Uh, there was some modern-day equivalents that, that they would talk about, these rabbis who would steal from idolatrous temples and whatnot. He would, they would know exactly what he was talking about. 23, you who make your boasts in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? He's simply pointing out, you have these privileges. You think you have this role to play towards everybody else, but you don't do it yourself. You fail in it on your own. And he, the summation of it all there in verse 24 is, for the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. You think you have these privileges that you can teach everybody else, when all the outcome is, is your actions are actually causing people to blaspheme God. And it was, a, it was a pretty stern challenge here to Jews who boasted they knew God, they're able to approve the best things over simply the good things. They had instruction where they could teach the blind, the darkened, the foolish, ignorant Gentiles the truth of God. 
and this prideful idea of being guides and being teachers because they had received God's revelation was something that Jesus even rebuked in his day. Matthew 23, he would say, woe to you blind guides. Two times he would say, fools and blind, fools and blind. We're going to step into John chapter 9, and Jesus would say there, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. They, they had a, a attitude, and their boasting was that they had truth and that they saw it clearly. But Paul's point is, it's only intellectual and not actual. Yes, you understand the truth in your head, but it hasn't been made real in their lives. They didn't have personal possession of the law that they felt they had. Again, a danger for ourselves. Just because we have a verse memorized doesn't mean we possess the truth of that verse. Just because a church has an orthodox doctrinal New Testament statement doesn't mean it has New Testament life. We need to have the correct doctrine, but that doesn't mean that we have the experience, the personal living reality of that truth in our lives. Having the right doctrine is looking for a well and being in the right place. If I dig in the wrong place, I'm never going to hit living water. If I'm in the right place, I can hit living water, but just because I'm in the right place doesn't mean I'm drinking yet. I have to dig and receive from that truth. Jesus says some pretty amazing things. The scriptures say some pretty incredible things about scripture. Jesus would say, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow torrents of living water. Now it's nice to think, that's a nice verse. But if I actually sit back and say, I might know that verse, but would I personally describe my Christian life as torrents of living water coming from my innermost being? Now that becomes personal. And if I want to dig in the right place, I say, dear God, please give me that. Release my portion of it. Because I don't know if that's true for me. But you offer it freely. And there's a big difference between knowing the truth, intellectually having the truth, memorizing the verse, and having the personal reality of that in your life. And these Jews knew it in their heads. They had the truth, and they felt like just because they had the truth, they could instruct others. But Paul points out, it's, it's not true in your life. You're stealing. You're committing adultery. You're, you think you should teach others when you still need to be taught. Are you teaching yourselves the same things? There was hypocrisy there. And Paul quotes from Isaiah 52.5 at the end in verse 24 there, the, the context in that is uh, these people were defeated in battle, and the idea is when you were defeated in battle, they also had the idea that your God was defeated. Um, so you, whatever was happening with you, your God was like that. And he's basically saying, you are living this wicked life so that Gentile people who look at you are going to say, well, their God must be wicked. Look at the life they live. You, you're living this hypocrisy. So the name of the Lord is blasphemed among the Gentiles. They see this. They recognize it. They were a bad testimony. Of course, that's always going to be out there in some regard. But the ultimate hypocritical reality of this was what happened not that long ago in the life of Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of everything that all the forms of their law showed up in Jesus, and what they ultimately did to him was they hounded and hated and murdered him. Now, there was a segment who realized the truth, but again, Paul understood this. He was like that. He knew the intellectual truth. He owned it. He was a person who thought he could be that teacher. 
then he met the personal Jesus Christ. And the reality of those things changed his life. And he understood that these Jews would think they were exempt from God's judgment because they have the truth. But he wants them to see their lives and see that what they believed about their law, what they knew intellectually, was only causing God's name actually to be blasphemed because of their general pride and selfishness, covetousness, and hypocrisy. And he's pointing out, you're not, you're not escaping God's judgment just because you know the truth. It needs to be real. Is it real in your lives? And obviously, thinking through those questions, they would realize it's not. Now, 25, he's going to move on and continue this. He's going to say, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And Paul's now going to move to the ceremonial action of circumcision, which obviously was so important for the Jew. But his point here is simply that I can't carry the sign of obedience in my flesh, my body, and live in disobedience. That in itself was a grave sin. I can't get circumcised, which would say I am separated to God if my life is not actually separated to God. There's hypocrisy in that. And if, if that was what I was like, then the ritual of circumcision had no value. Again, even as believers, it's rightly said that circumcision relates to our baptism. The two are very alike. In a baptism, a person publicly de declares what Christ has done personally inside of them, spiritually. I stand and I say, me, the old me, whoever I was, am dead with Jesus Christ. I go under the water. And the, when I come out of the water, I'm making a statement that I now walk in newness of life, which is not my own, it's his. And I'm publicly saying, I'm going to live in that newness of life. I'm making a statement about what God has done in me. And if I go and I live a life that's totally opposite of the Lord, then what has baptism done for me? It, it doesn't have its value. And circumcision was a similar thing for the Jew. I wasn't supposed to get circumcised just to be circumcised. You were saying, I am separated unto the Lord, to his promises, to his purposes. This was, of course, clearly seen here in the lives of some. He's going to make this example. Look at 26. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law... Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? This was seen, and Paul's going to bring it up very shortly, in the life of Abraham. Abraham did not receive the promises of God after he was circumcised. He received them before he was circumcised. He had God's promises. He had belief in God. He was accounted righteous. Then he received circumcision as a sign that he was separated to those things. The spiritual reality was already there. In the same way, Paul is saying, if a person isn't circumcised yet, but they're living the spiritual reality, that's what God is aiming for. But if I'm just circumcised and not living the life that God is actually aiming for, then what is the value of it? And this was, this was the problem. In Judaism. 27, he would add to that, and will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? This is a pretty huge one. Now, Paul's, this is where I think Paul would start to get stoned or thrown out of synagogues. When he started, when he started saying stuff like this, where People who are uncircumcised, who are obeying God and keeping the law, are going to be judges of you who are circumcised, who don't do those things. Man, that was, those were fighting words right there. Now, it was the same argument that Jesus made. In Matthew 12, Jesus would say, The men of Nineveh, uncircumcised, 
will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus points out to his people those who are uncircumcised they're not even a part of these promises. They repented when the work of God was evident among them. And here he is, their Messiah, with them who are circumcised and separated to these things, not accepting it. He said, these are going to rise up in judgment as witnesses against you. It was a stern saying there. And the Jew knew, even from the Old Testament, that the physical act of circumcision wasn't the end-all be-all. There was a spiritual significance to it. Moses himself, in Deuteronomy 10:16, would say, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. The, the guy who they would lean on the most, Moses, realized there's more than just the physical act. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart, he says. Be stiff-necked no longer. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26 would say, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised, Egypt, Judah, Edom, and the people of Ammon and Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. He says, I'm going to judge you with all those who are uncircumcised because you're uncircumcised in heart. Just because you've done this thing in the flesh doesn't, doesn't mean it covers up that your heart is somehow distant from me and in rebellion to me. And again, in our Christian lives, we can't just show up at church or get baptized or take communion and ignore the fact of what's actually a spiritual reality in our heart. And these Jews had a form of obedience, but the inner reality of disobedience took away all the glory and boasting of the Jew. Sadly, again, this is a rebuke of what's going to happen to the church in the last days. In verse 20, when Paul says they have a Form these Jews of knowledge and the truth in the law. That word is used one other time in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where it talks about in the last days, people are going to have a form of righteousness, but they're going to, or godliness, but they're going to deny the power thereof. That one of the things that's going to characterize the church, so called church, in the last days is they're going to have the form of godliness, still going to show up at church, still going to get baptized, still going to take communion, but they're going to deny the power of those things, the spiritual reality to change hearts and lives. And for the Jew, that was what happened, although there was always a remnant, just like in the last days, there will always be a remnant of those who are still following the Lord walking in the spiritual reality of the things that the Lord has laid out. But, but Paul knew through his conversations, through his years of sharing these things, that this would be some of the things on the Jewish mind. But we're circumcised. But we have God's truth. We're different than these other folks. God's judgment toward us is going to be different. And Paul is saying, no, it's not. Just because you're circumcised, you are not going to be excused from the judgment of God. 28. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, just as we looked at those verses, in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. The true Jew that God was always looking for was the one whose heart was connected to the things he laid out. The forms 
or something that was supposed to lead them to the spiritual reality. When I came and offered a lamb and its innocent life and blood was shed to cover my sin, that was supposed to lead me to something. It didn't just go through the motions. That's why God he didn't want the blood of bulls and goats. There was something else happening there. When they were circumcised, it was the same thing. He didn't just want something to happen in their flesh. He wanted something to happen in their hearts. And just because you were a Jew nationally didn't mean you were fully stepping into all of God's promises. Because if you were Korah or Ahab or Judas, you weren't doing what God wanted you to do. There was something else that he was looking for, faith. Like Nathaniel, who we look at and say, this is an Israelite indeed, whom is no guile. The faith that would connect to Jesus. The true Jew would see his Lord. That, that was what he was looking for. And this is what Paul is laying out for them. He's looking for a man or woman who's actually pleasing God. Now, he knew that that was going to continue to bring questions to their mind. And Paul is anticipating some of these objectors. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Here, here's what he knew they would think. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief be made make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Paul anticipates here this question from the religious too. Oh, okay, Paul, if that's what you're saying, if that's how it is, if I'm supposed to be a Jew, not just outwardly, physically, but inwardly, spiritually, then what is the benefit of being a Jew at all? Why? What? What's the point? Is there any benefit? And you would kind of expect Paul to say no, but he says the opposite. He says, well, yes. He says, much in every way. Yeah, there is a benefit, particularly because, notice he says, first and foremost, they have God's oracles. They were committed the word of God. They were entrusted with the truth of God. That was their ultimate advantage that they could have God's truth and know it. Paul, when he spoke to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, would say this, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, notice, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul says, hey, Gentiles, remember, you were without the truth of God at one point. You, you were without the covenants and the promises. You've been brought in and brought near and given those things. The Jew had those things. Now, their problem was they lost the reality of them. They had the intellectual possession of them, but not the personal possession of them. And it was still a blessing that they were given those things because that was what would lead them to the spiritual reality. The revelation of God, his oracles, his sayings. Unfortunately, look at verse 3, Paul admits, even though they had this advantage, well, what if some did not believe? Because they didn't. Jews in every day and age down through the line, whether it was Moses giving them the word of God, whether it was prophets being sent, whether they were reading the law that had been written, wherever it was, there was always a group who didn't believe all the way up until the Messiah came. And again, they reject their Messiah. They proved unfaithful and prideful. Yet even in that, God declared it would happen in his word. And his word was justified. So Paul says, what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? 
okay, well, if every Jew doesn't get into the fullness of God's promises, does that mean that God let down the Jews? He says, certainly not. Your Bible might say, God forbid. The idea is really banish the thought. Let it not be so. Don't, don't think that at all. God never promised that every single individual Jew was going to fully step into his promises. That's, like I said, why you have an Ahab or you have a Judas. He promised to keep the people till he had fulfilled all his promises, the national group he's going to keep alive. That's why Israel still exists, and it's a miracle. And it's one of, literally, the apologetics that the word of God is what it is, that this people group has existed and continued to exist even when they were dispersed and then brought back together as a nation. It's amazing. But just because he says he's going to continue with the people group doesn't mean every single person who nationally makes up that people group is going to make it. They still need to put individual faith in the Lord and in his word. And Paul says, so if some didn't believe, does that mean his promises fail? Certainly not. That was even a part of his word. Just like in our day and age. There are going to be some that stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? He's going to be, say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Does that mean that nobody gets into heaven? Certainly not. But what he offers, he offers to those who are going to step into it in faith, which has always been the plan. He says, okay, because the Jews would think that. Well, some didn't believe. Does that mean God's promises failed? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. What he said would always be true. As it is written, he quotes from David here, Psalm 51.4, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. The idea simply being, David, even in his sin, admits God's character doesn't change. Whether God is being merciful or God is bringing judgment, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he does so justly. And he would do so in David's life. God is always going to be faithful to what he said. And he says, this kind of builds then, verse 5 and 6, anticipating the next question. Well, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And he says, I speak as a man. Saying I speak as a man is the idea. I'm just saying what I know people are thinking. Right? So the Jew is sitting there saying, okay, well, you're saying even in God's word, he said some would be unfaithful and would be judged. Well, then aren't we fulfilling God's word? Even if we're being unfaithful, how can, he, how can he judge us then? And Paul's saying, I'm just speaking as a man. This, this isn't actually, he's not like claiming this thought. This, I know people are thinking this, he's saying. And his point there is, no, of course not. If, if God cannot judge his own people according to his word, fairly, if he lets them off the hook or gives them an excuse, how can he be a judge of the whole world? He would be unfair. He is going to be just, a just judge of the entire world. God always promises that even in human sin and rebellion, his plan is going to be worked out. No, nobody's actually going to get over on him. The question is, to us personally, how are we responding to those things? In C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, makes this statement, and I think it sums it up well. He says, For you will certainly carry out God's purpose however you act, but it makes a difference to you whether you serve like Judas or like John. You're going to carry out God's purpose one way or another. You could try to fight against God, but I'd rather be Moses than Pharaoh or Judas than John. Personally, it matters very much to me whether I relate to him as a son or as a tool. And I'd rather relate to him personally as a son. His word's going to be true either way. 
his judgment is going to be just either way. He's going to do exactly what he has said. People can't rest their unbelief or unrighteousness on the word of God. That's what Paul's saying. It's your own wickedness. You can't make this argument here. Now, it devolves even kind of further from there, because in verse 7, he anticipates a last kind of objection, where he says, For if the truth of God has, incre has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? Okay, well, if God uses Pharaoh or Judas, then how can they still be judged as a sinner? Shouldn't, shouldn't God be glorified in their lives? Shouldn't they actually... You know, I don't know, get a star on the refrigerator because they did, they were part of God's purpose or something. That's what Paul's saying. And, and he's just anticipating, he knows that people are going to hear this. And I, you know, I love this argument because it's interesting. What Paul's going to do here is he's not even going to answer this one. He's just going to condemn the thought. <laughs> he's not even going to go there in the argument. And I think, you know, what Paul entered into these places, he went in the synagogues, he reasoned with men, he, he worked with them out of the scripture, and a lot of times we, I, I think when people read that and they talk about it, they think about these really intellectual conversations. It wasn't always like that. People said dumb stuff. <laughs> and, and Paul didn't always dive into, Paul. he gave a whole lot of warnings to Timothy. People, vain babblings, dumb things, don't even argue about those things. Correct a person once or twice and then be done with it. There, there is a lot of just junk that people would throw out there, and Paul knew this is one of those things. Well, why am I then still judged as a sinner? Look at verse 8. Why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say? Because Paul's message of grace and forgiveness they were giving, they were saying, he, Paul's just saying, People should do evil things so that God can be good. And he's saying, people slander, slanderously say this, that this is my message. This is not my message. His whole point here is, these people are still going to be judged. And he just says, look, his answer is, their condemnation is just. I, I'm not even going to get into the details of this here. It's so ridiculous. He just says, this is done. Doing evil so that good can possibly come does not change the character of evil. That's his point. If, if that were true, then the worst sinners would also be the greatest saints, which is dumb. That's, that's not true. It's like saying, because David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and it worked out in the end because God had grace and mercy on them. We should all just try that out. That's not, that's not how things work. No, your condemnation is just, if that's what you're thinking. So Paul's making it clear, look, you're not, none of you Jews are escaping this. You're, you're, you're not going to put your, uh, your idea of God being unjust because he brings judgment to the Jews in, in him. It's, it's your wickedness. You have the truth, but you haven't personally embraced it. Just because you're circumcised doesn't mean that you're actually living God's will. You, you can't escape it. He's, he's always going to do what he said he would do. And you can't throw that back on him. So, verse 9, this kind of sums it up here. This is what he's been working toward. What then? Where does that leave us? What have we come to? Are we better than they? Again, Paul's not trying to slam these Jews. He had a heart for these Jews. The, the Jews that he knew would say things like this. He wasn't, he wasn't tired of them and done with them. He loved them because he was them. He wanted to stay when he was saved in Jerusalem and preach to the Jews, even though they were trying to kill him. Most of us, if somebody just gives us a hard time at work, we're out. Like, I don't want to talk to you anymore. He was hanging around these people. He would go into the synagogues. He would get beat up. He would get thrown in jail. They would lie about him. They'd chase him around to other cities. They wouldn't even leave him alone when he left. So he's not saying these things out of spite. He's speaking the truth. I think Paul knows he had to speak very clearly to them. But he needs them to see, 
Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. This is where he's bringing it. Everybody is under sin. Nobody is in a position to escape the judgment of God. Nobody gets a different measuring stick. Nobody has special circumstances. Nobody's going to get there based on their own righteousness. Nobody's going to not be judged because they don't have enough information or because God's invisible. Nobody's going to escape it because they're a better moral person than the person who's an obviously wicked sinner. And just because you're a Jew who's been given the truth of God doesn't mean you have all the reality of that in your life. And it's been obvious by the way you've been living. Because even the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God by the way they look at your life. So nobody's escaping the judgment of God here. And now he's just going to bring this to a crescendo. Really in 10 through 18, he's going to lay out all these things that are basically true uh, of humanity. Uh, William Newell, in his commentary on Romans, his heading on this section is 14 horrible things about all men. I was just like, okay, wow, we know where we're going here. And he lays out, Paul lays out this grouping of Old Testament scriptures to sum up the case that he's already established, which is Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. That's why he says, as it is written, what he's telling us is what the prophets declared about human nature in the Old Testament, still true today. We have not progressed morally Sometimes the world thinks that they've gotten better because they've changed. Change is not progress. Those two things are different. Just because we change the way we live does not mean we have actually progressed as human beings. Just because we have refrigerators does not mean we're morally better people than people who didn't. And there's this thought process that, hey, just because the world has changed and we got technology or something, we somehow progress also morally. Nope. Human beings are exactly the same. And what the prophets said back in the Old Testament about human nature is still true about human nature. And Paul is going to sum that up here because it needs to be said. Scroggy in his commentary, Salvation and Behavior, says the pride of man rebels against the truth about himself. But in so doing, he is despising the grace of God and incurring the wrath of God. Humanity doesn't want to see itself like this. But Paul says, this is what's true. And he would include himself. I was like that. But something changed, which he'll get to. But first, he lays this out. So... As it is written, this little section, uh, I think, broken down into three segments. 10 through 12, we see sinful motives. 13 through 14, sinful speech. 15 through 18, sinful actions. And all of these prove that man is under sin. So, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside they have altogether become unprofitable. That word unprofitable there, it was used for rotting fruit. They've all turned rotten. There is none who does good, no, not one. Man at his very core is broken, is corrupted outside of God. He's not born good and then becomes a sinner. He is born a sinner, and that becomes proved out in man's life. Psalm 51.5, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We've all been astray. Everyone to his own way. Not in the same way. We're all sinners, but our sin nature looks a little different, each one of us. But at the center... We all have the same problem. We're broken. No one is actually righteous. No one understands God fully. No one's actually seeking him. 
Nobody looked up into heaven and said, God, I got this great idea. Why don't you send your son in the form of a man to die on a cross to pay for it? No, it was his plan. We weren't seeking him. He saw us. We've all turned aside. Life becomes rotten outside of him. There's none that does good. 13 and 14, it's their throat is an open tomb. What is a graphic picture? When man begins to open his mouth, he's opening the place of a rotting corpse. It's a pretty graphic picture, right? Their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You notice, we, humanity often thinks very little of sins of speech. God apparently thinks very seriously about that. You know, I think it's also very interesting, David, all through the Psalms, David who lived in a time of brutality, he was a guy who fought hand-to-hand combat with a sword and a spear. Blood and bone was a part of his life. He was a bloody man, the things that he endured. Talks incessantly about the tongue. You'd think he would speak about the brutality that he had seen in war, and instead he just talks about things like this, deceitful lips, that tongue, the betrayer, the the wickedness that comes out of a person's mouth. The Bible is clear. The tongue has a heart source and a hell source, James. What comes out of a person's mouth is what's already existed in their heart. If it didn't exist in their heart, it couldn't have come out of their mouth. We say, ah, that was an accident. It wasn't really an accident. It was only an accident that what we were thinking the whole time actually came out. That's what the accident was. we We all have the problem that that thing exists in our heart originally. You just see the tongue is a source of our wickedness is an evidence that we're wicked people. Psalm 10:7, which is said of a wicked person, says his mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression, and under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. You don't have to go far to realize people are wicked. <laughs> you can just go on social media, go in any comment section on anything in the world, uh, watch TV for a little bit, listen to conversations for a little bit. In fact, if you want to notice the wickedness of human beings, go to a youth sporting event and listen to the coaches and parents on the sidelines. These, these are not bastions of Christian speech. These, these are areas that prove humanity is wicked. And the tongue makes that evident, and it's not just Americans, it's any culture anywhere. And what we see is that the mouth proves what's true of human nature. So Paul picks out these scriptures that just shows this over and over again. Then 15, he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here we have a description then of the bad fruit. We have the nature that's separated from God, that nature working its way out in human speech, and now that nature working itself out in human action. That shedding of blood, destruction of purpose and joy, lack of God-ordained experience, no spiritual reverence. I mean, just watch the news in Philadelphia for a week, and it's heartbreaking to recognize that people don't have the peace that God wanted. Isaiah 59, 8 says, The way of peace they have not known. There is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths, and whoever takes that way shall not know peace. And it is sad that so many people live without the peace that the Lord has wanted because of the wickedness of their ways. People want sin. 
That's the reality of humanity. You'll always have somebody out there who's like, you know, if God was really real, he would stop, you know, whatever, rape or war or something. He would stop sin or wickedness. If anybody says anything like that, just ask them, how much? How, how much sin do you want God to stop? Because the reality is, they don't want it. You want them to stop war? Yeah. You want them to stop rape? Yeah. You want them to stop abortion? Sexual sin? Mm. Right. You want them to stop the sinful music you listen to? Sinful shows you watch? Sinful things you think and say? You want them to stop? The reality is, people don't want God to stop sin. It's a farce. They want their sin. They want to live out their sin. Even as believers, I think we would be challenged. We're supposed to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes part of us might be like, wow, you know, if God's kingdom came, there'd be things in my life that would have to change. Our entertainment choices, the way we spend our lives. There's, there's a part of human nature that loves sin because, 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. There is a disconnect from the actual supernatural reverence of God. The fear of God is not just scaring people with hell. The fear of God is a supernatural reality. It's an awareness that the creator is near. And when I live in the fear of God, I live in his presence. And people don't live like God's around. This is what human nature is like, apart from him. And it's sad because the world promises that if you follow that, that's the way of peace. Follow your sin. Follow your inclination. But what he says is the way of peace they have not known. They're not going to find it that way. They're not going to find it in giving themselves to the lusts of their hearts. They're not going to find it in giving themselves to the materialism of the world. They're not going to find it in giving themselves to the things that the world would stir up in their sinful nature. They'll only find it in him. Paul knew that. So he says in 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. The law, God's oracles, was given to the Jews for all the world and places all before God as guilty. The law says a person should basically love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everybody falls short. Everybody falls short. And what, one of the things that happens, particularly when people get put in a position where their sins are, are being brought up or their sinful nature is being, we'll say, a light is being shed on it, they want to talk about the sins of others. People like to talk about the sins of other people. But then when our sin gets clearly brought out, you notice what happens every mouth ends up being stopped. When, when we become personally responsible, because we're all going to be personally responsible, and notice, become guilty before God. We, we can deflect what's happening in the world. Yeah, but this is happening here. Or, yeah, but this person got away with this, or this, was, this thing was worse over here. I've had so many conversations like that. I'm trying to talk to somebody about something with them, and they're going to say, yeah, but I know about this person and that. Okay, fine, let's talk about that person. But first, let's, let's talk about this issue. And every human being is going to stand before God, and we stand before God as guilty. We don't, we're not, nobody's going to stand there and talk about the sins of other people. We are all going to be overwhelmed with our own sin. And all the world will become guilty before God. Therefore, he says... By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul wants to make it clear, the law proves sin, but it does not give life. 
It was hard for the Jew to accept this. But even the recognition of sin was not yet salvation. They could see it. And it was difficult for them to realize that. They thought the law and seeing sin, that meant they were saved. And Paul's saying, no, the law doesn't bring you salvation. The law brings you to the place where you're guilty before God and you realize you need salvation. And you need to look and say, where can I find a righteousness from God? Paul would say in Galatians 3.22, the same point, the scripture has confined all under sin. Here's why. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is why all are under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ can be given to those who believe. So that you can receive what God has promised you. You need to realize that you're under sin. Again, this, these truths People talk about the judgment of God. Paul talking about the judgment of God. Paul making it clear, the light of God shining on the sinfulness of human nature. Again, in our world, this is, this is self-condemning. This is bigotry. This is harsh. This is law. You know, we're, we're more along the side of God's grace and love, not on the side of God's law. This is is given to awaken men out of false hopes in themselves. This is the love of God. Because when humanity stands before God in the end, there is no pleading like this. In Revelation 20, when I'm at the white throne judgment, there's no pleading. There's nobody saying you should recognize that your religious deeds don't do it for you. Or that your ethic of being a good person doesn't get you there. Or that you don't have an excuse just because God is invisible or you feel like you don't have enough information. There's nobody pleading at that point. Then you're guilty before God. And like the ark, the door is shut. Time's up. This is given so that when humanity can hear it, the light can shine on them and they can say, God, your judgment is true. Your judgment is true. I'm a broken sinner, and I have no excuse, and your judgment on me would be just. Then, he says, I have a Savior. If you're not guilty of sin, Christianity has no message for you. And some people are just walking around the world guilty of guilt. They don't even know why. They need a psychologist or somebody to explain them why they're guilty of guilt. That's not the biblical message. Biblical message is humanity is guilty of sin. And if humanity is guilty of sin, Paul's going to show them there's a Savior. There's a Savior. And he shows through the Holy Spirit who loves humanity and from a man who lived that self-righteous life to others who he knew what they were thinking, the same. We're all under sin. We're all under sin. But we can receive if we see that. If our eyes are open and we recognize that. The promise. The gift of God in Jesus Christ through faith. So if you're here tonight, again, and you know you're a sinner, and you have not personally brought your sin to Jesus Christ, will you receive his forgiveness? Or will you reject that and walk out? You can have it tonight, or you can decide you don't want it. I encourage you to come and speak with us after the service. For the rest of us who are believers, I think it's just important for us to think again. We do have truth, and it is from God, but just because I have it intellectually, do I have it personally? And those are two different things. Or am I just going through the motions and thinking because intellectually I know the truth, or I have the verse memorized, that I somehow also possess everything that is involved in that. And certainly we should be pleading with God if we recognize, no, Lord, there's more for me, which there always is. Give me my portion of that.
in you. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that's there. We thank you for light. And we thank you for your grace. And we thank you, Lord, that you are willing to plead with men. And Lord, I do pray that if there's any here tonight that don't know you or haven't personally brought their sin to you and confessed and received forgiveness, that they would do that. And Lord, again, I just ask for myself, for my brothers and sisters here, who you've saved, who you've washed, who you've cleansed, we just pray you'll wash us afresh and allow us, Lord, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of you. You are more willing to give, Lord, than we are desirous to receive. You prove that on the cross. So we look to you, Lord. We open our mouths wide. We ask that you would fill us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.